You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 307 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. If you're a regular listener to the podcast, you might know that last year I constructed a greenhouse. I'm going to grow all the vegetables known to man, or at least try to. Currently, I've been pre-planting everything indoors, turning seeds into saplings. Not sure that's the right term, but that's what I call it. Anyway, they have begun popping out of the pots. I might document it more on my YouTube channel, but I haven't done that yet. So maybe subscribe to it. Uh, I've got a lot of stuff over there. Apart from the podcast, I have a wide array of videos. I'm sure you'll find something that you will enjoy. Just search Natural Born Alchemist channel on YouTube and lo and behold, there I am. In this episode, my guest is Nerve Wing that writes a lot about novel drugs and their effects. Unnerving is a contributor to the Airweed Experience Vaults. We'll be talking about the classic psychedelic substances, as well as DXM, DOPR, DPT, and ketamine. So thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. So can you tell a little bit about who you are and, and what you do? Um, so I'm Nervewing. I... Um, I dedicate a lot of time to researching uh, novel psychoactive compounds, particularly hallucinogens. Um, so in doing this, I have experienced a lot myself, of course. I've taken a lot myself. I've written a lot of trip reports. Um, a lot of these reports are shared on platforms like Arrowhead. Um, so I've written probably close to, um, probably coming up on almost 200 reports now at this point. Um, and I've also done a lot of kind of research and article, popular science kind of writing on discovering new psychoactive compounds and exploring obscure compounds too. Yeah. So how how can you like design a new compound? Um, so the main way that I kind of go about designing compounds is through um, a field called structure activity relations. And this is we see the structure of molecule and we observe that it has this effect on the human nervous system. And you can kind of infer that this structure leads to this effect. And by observing patterns in that and by testing kind of ranges of compounds with slight variations, you can kind of eke out those patterns. And in doing that, you can get a pretty good idea of, um, you can make some pretty good predictions of what effects a possible molecule might have, and you can get good ideas of what may be active, what may be active in what way, what peripheral effects may appear, what side effects may appear. Um, and it's a pretty, it's a lot of conjecture, but it's also a pretty fleshed out field just based on inference that lets people kind of take, make very educated guesses about um, potential compounds that may work and produce desired effects in a human body. What, what do you use normally as like a source material? Um, so really just a lot of deep digging into academic papers, academia, um, this really reading a lot of scientific papers is really the basis of it. And, you know, in the world of academia, you get legitimacy by reading and citing academic papers. Um, that's the kind of whole process of it. And 
you know, to, to be published, they have to pass a certain level of peer review. They have to have a certain amount of approval. Um, and so that's, I would say the main source of information I use is just really like looking up certain classes of compound, looking up certain activities on nerve receptors. And that gives me a pretty good idea of what to look for and gives me an idea of what's been tried already. And that gives data points that then can be built off of to make further inferences and further conjectures. So when you synthesize a compound, what what do you use to synthesize it from? Is it like a, a plant or what, what? what is it? So I actually don't do any synthesis myself. Um, admittedly, that was, I, I took a class on organic chemistry in college. I almost failed it. That's not my strong suit. Um, I, leave, I leave that to others. But in general, um, synthesis usually... For a lot of these compounds, um, it's easiest just to start with synthetics. Um, it tends to be much more difficult to extract and isolate certain compounds from plants just because uh, natural sources contain such a wide variety of compounds. And if there's just one target chemical that you're trying to find, um, it can be very difficult to kind of separate that one out from all the others and, and work from there. So often the best and most efficient route is just to start purely synthetic. Um, and just work your way up from a variety of possible like base pre compounds and precursors. So most people that are into psychedelics, they know about DMT, ayahuasca or, or LSD and, and maybe DMT extraction is the furthest they'll ever go. Well, it's the furthest I've ever gone in, in chemistry wise, but can you name some of these other more obscure compounds and, and what kind of effects they have compared to the ones I've mentioned? Yeah, so um, in the realm of psychedelics, there's kind of what people call the classical psychedelics. Uh, these are LSD, psilocybin, mescaline, uh, DMT. And these are ones that have been well-researched. There's been a long history of human use just through millennia of indigenous usage. These are things that often occur in nature. Um, LSD, of course, doesn't occur in nature, but it was kind of the big turning point in the kind of introduction of psychedelics to the Western world and Western science. Um, and so these are the ones that have been studied the most thoroughly. They have the most data and these would be considered the classical psychedelics. Um, a lot of what I like to delve into are uh, kind of under an umbrella term of research chemicals, which is kind of a vague, nonspecific term, but it really just means psychoactive compounds that have not seen as much study as the more familiar ones. Um, a lot of them are slight modifications of the familiar compounds, just, you know, adding an atom here, adding a kind of side structure onto a more familiar molecule here, and that usually will produce similar but slightly different effects. And I think that's, I think that's just kind of the most fascinating part is that just the sheer variety of effects that can be produced just by tweaking a molecule just a little bit, you can consistently produce very you know, very similar effects to what is desired, but you can get interesting variations in the ways those effects can present. And it really widens the field of what a psychedelic experience can be, in my opinion. So are you nervous when you're testing a new compound that hasn't really been tried before or it doesn't have like a history of usage? Um, so it depends. There's, there's some that are like very, very similar to known familiar safe compounds is a very slight modification. Um, you can very reliably predict what the effects will be. And those ones I don't, I'm not, don't feel too concerned about. There's very little surprises there. Um, but there are also other compounds that are not as structure related to others that 
do have potential to have more unpredictable effects. Um, and yeah, I mean, sometimes, sometimes labs produce these things just to, and they want people to test them out for them. Other times these just get put on the market without even really being tested first by anybody and everybody's in for a surprise that can be a little concerning sometimes, but, um, in general, I, I don't feel too much apprehension. I feel pretty confident in. Uh, just kind of looking at the structure of something and having a pretty good idea of what it will do and um, what kind of negative effects I can predict from it, most of all. And um, it's just, it's when things kind of start to stray from familiarity that it becomes unknown territory that there is greater potential for surprises to pop up. And that, that can be a little scary sometimes. My experience is mainly in the plant psychedelics like mushrooms and ayahuasca and that. And uh, when you take those psychedelics you often encounter real or not who knows but uh, like a, a sort of intelligence you feel like there's an other there and then when i tried uh, a couple of times lsd i felt that uh, i was alone there was there was only me there uh, and i've heard others who tried lsd felt the same way but i mean Every what everybody's experience is different, but when you're doing these kinds that you're doing that are more synthetic, uh, do you ever get the sense that there's like an other, or is it just uh, within yourself? You know. Oh, absolutely, actually. Um, so I think it's interesting you say that because actually that contrasts to my personal experiences with LSE, in which I have encountered what I think feel like foreign intelligences. Uh, this kind of other entities. Um, I feel like I've definitely encountered that on my own personally and through a lot of these so-called research chemicals, obscure compounds. Um, a lot of the experiences have yielded contact with beings, with sentiences, with entities, with kind of minds that feel other than my own. And it's a fascinating experience. I'm still, I still not really decided on whether I think that's like kind of a internal projection that just feels cut off from me or if it's really truly something alien that I'm coming in contact with. Um, it's particularly with dissociatives, actually, um, the one that I really want to cite is, uh, actually just over the counter cough medicine, dextromethorphan has given me some of the most vivid entity contact experiences I've ever had, which is really interesting. Like you go to the store, you drink cough medicine, people think it's a drug for teenagers, but I would say this is one of the most profound drugs I've taken. And it's really, um, in doing that, I've really encountered things that feel alive alien in motion and so I, it may, it leads me to think that you know these these beings these entities these consciousnesses aren't necessarily bound to specific compounds but kind of are bound to a state that the mind goes into that could be triggered by a wide variety of compounds so you just drink a lot of this cough medicine or do you do something to it um yeah so this is I haven't done it as much recently. Um, after a point, my body kind of began to reject it and rebel against it. But this is, um, it's known as DXM, dextromethorphan. It is the active ingredient in a lot of over-the-counter cough medicine preparations. Usually it's combined with uh, other things like acetaminophen or guaifenensin. And that's just to kind of curb abuse because those produce unpleasant side effects. But DXM, if you um, are able to consume it by itself. It's a fascinating dissociative experience. Um, there's so many levels to it. It's hallucinatory. There's 
entities. There can be like almost coherent storylines. Um, it's very hard to describe and wrap around. Some of the most interesting experiences I've had have been from this, which is really interesting that I can just, it's something that I can just get at the corner store. In the past, I've had a guest who's tried uh, every drug known to man uh, as, a, as a research project. And he, he claimed that uh, the dissociative ones, like uh, he also did like musket and datura, and, but all the dissociative ones are the most horrible from his experience um, because you feel like delirious or um, don't you find that or, or can you find uh, peace in it? Um, so there's, there's kind of like the three categorizations of hallucinogens. There's the psychedelics, of course. And then the other two are the dissociatives and the delirious. Um, so that person may have been talking strictly about the delirious. This is a class of chemicals also known as anticholinergics. Um, and these are things like, uh, Benadryl or diphenhydramine. Um, or the active compounds like scopolamine, atropine, and hyacinamine that are found in plants like datura or brugmansia. Um, and these are chemicals that produce very unpleasant hallucinatory effects, often likened to the delirium of fever, um, where people see things that aren't there. They have very unpleasant physical sensations. Um, and I think this is separate from the dissociatives, which is a class of drugs, uh, that are based on inhibiting this kind of excitatory system in the nervous system. Um, the associatives are more recognized along the lines of things like ketamine, uh, PCP, DXM are some of the more popular ones, uh, nitrous oxide. And then there's a vast field of kind of obscure synthetic research chemical type dissociatives that are available nowadays too. So do you have a theory what goes on in the brain? So depending on what like molecules you put into it, they like rearrange your perception of reality or you enter your brain is has always been an antenna so your mind is not really in the brain so uh, when you take these different substances you change the frequency or you i don't know you teleport to another dimension what's your theory um so on a on a purely physical level, it's like pretty well documented what these drugs do. They touch on certain receptors, they interact with receptors in a certain way, and that kind of alters the flow of neurotransmitters through your nervous system. And just changing the flow of those neurotransmitters can lead to wildly interesting effects. So if we're talking about dissociatives, for example, um, the way those work is you have these, uh, you have the kind of glutamate system in your nervous system. And that's kind of, uh, that's involved with a lot of activating neurons with kind of, you know, activating uh, intentional processes that your body and mind do. And the way that these drugs work is they actually inhibit that and in blocking that they kind of, uh, I would, th this is kind of where it gets into more hypothetical territory, but um, the drugs work just kind of by inhibiting that action, inhibiting the passage of those excitatory neurotransmitters. And in doing that, it kind of almost leaves the brain to its own devices. It kind of separates it from stimulus. It kind of separates it from its own feedback loops. And um, I would hypothesize that at that point, it kind of starts to generate its own information and it kind of starts to exist almost independently, which existing independently from their surroundings creates a sense of dissociation. It creates a sense of separation from yourself because 
you just aren't really in touch with your surroundings, your senses anymore. And that produces really fascinating experiences. Um, so on like a phenomenological level, I think there is very little understood kind of about how these processes work, but on a purely neurological level, there is, it's kind of just boils down to just changing the way that neurotransmitters flow between our neurons. And it's just amazing how subtle changes in that can produce such fascinating experiences and alter our perceptions of reality so heavily it makes it almost seem so fragile <laughs> how easily this can all be changed well if i would have never done psychedelics and read that explanation uh, i could imagine like you know when you drink alcohol uh, it does feel you've changed your perception and uh, but so that would make uh, sense logically i mean like okay i drink alcohol i have a different sense of the world uh but you know when you like smoke dmt i mean it's too much of a change to to qualify as an explanation <laughs> you know what i mean like it's like it can't be this much much change i mean if the brain is if you only like tinker a tiny tiny bit with inside your brain you get the dm the full-on dmt effect it, it's too it's too much. I mean, I, I, I'm not a scientist, but it feels like that's uh, the explanation is is not enough. As as a counterpoint, I'd say people kind of underestimate what brains are actually capable of, and just the sheer amount of information that brains are able to store and produce is really well beyond what we experience in our day to day lives. Um, so, I mean, I guess personally, just through studying this, it doesn't really seem too necessarily out there that we do have this contained within all of us it's more it's not necessarily that um it's something like small that it's like i would say it's kind of that we have this potential in all of us and introducing these substances into our system kind of unlocks that potential and opens those avenues and um it's that like you know this this is in us this, all this potential energy is here it's just a matter of finding it and kind of using it and partitioning it and having it present in a certain way all these different kinds of of psychedelics or or um, other substances you've you've used do, do they last as long as as LSD or mushrooms or are they shorter um so LSD is one of kind of definitely on the longer uh, lasting end of the scale. The longest lasting one I've ever consumed is uh, DOPR. That is um, a compound that was invented by Alexander Shulgin. It is the it is an amphetamine analog of the psychedelic 2CP, and that landed an experience that lasted uh, upwards of 30 hours. That was that's a trial. Um, and a lot of similar compounds, similar in structure, also have a similar duration. Uh, those are very marathon experiences. And then on the other end, you have a lot of tryptamines. Um, that's the family that psilocybin and DMT belong to. Um, and a lot of the tryptamines actually will yield very short experiences that will subside after just three or four hours, um, particularly things like 4-HODET, 4-HOMALT, 4-HODIPT are just... It's it's word it's word salad and letters and numbers, but that's just a few examples of ones that I found yield very short experiences. And that's kind of what I like about research chemicals is that um, it really just widens the field of what's possible. You can really 
If you want something that's very short, um, there's a molecule for that. If you want something that's extremely long, there's a molecule for that. And um, I just think that's very fascinating that the psychedelic experience can be modulated in such a way. There must be a moment when you take that one that lasts 30 hours where you're thinking it will never end. Well, <laughs> thankfully, if I was the first one to have taken that one, I may have felt some concern there, but thankfully someone had walked the path before, so I knew it would end eventually, but there was a point where I was like, this is just like, this is too much. Like, I just, <laughs> I just want to relax. I just want to go back to normal. This almost feels like tedious at this point. I've just been dealing with being in this headspace for so long. It kind of just like, it almost feels like it would be refreshing a novel just to go back to being sober. For some dumb reason, when I did LSD uh, the first time, I, I, I thought it lasted as long as like mushrooms. So after seven hours when it hadn't stopped, I, I got a bit concerned. But uh, uh, you should always do your studying and Googling before you take it. But I, I discovered online that it was more like 12 hours. So, <laughs> But uh, um, uh, it did feel like it would never end. Um, but do you do these uh, substances for like research or for spiritual growth or just for fun? Um, so admittedly, I'm not too much of a spiritual person. I've never in my like just... I don't deny that people have spiritual experiences. I don't deny other people's spiritual, um, kind of people's contact with the spiritual world. It's just something I personally have not felt for myself. And honestly, I'm kind of jealous. I feel like I'm kind of missing out. I've really tried earnestly and just never really been able to kind of have that kind of contact. Um, so most of my use of psychedelics is more introspective, exploratory, um, inspirational. A lot of it is kind of exploring the boundaries of my imagination, exploring the boundaries of my own mind. It's a very kind of personal thing. Have you ever had any like healing from them? Absolutely. Um, but like I said, like, the healing didn't necessarily feel like it came from a spiritual or external angle. It kind of felt more like a new perspective of looking at myself, a new perspective of analyzing my own thoughts and experiences that offered me kind of a a way to a healthier way to look at things, a healthier way to interact with the world, a healthier way to interact with others and myself. And I think that's uh, most of a lot of the benefit that these compounds has offered me is that it really gives me different perspectives in how I perceive just the world and myself. And, you know, it's kind of the basis of mental health is baseline, how you perceive the world, how you perceive yourself and how you interact with it. And I would say that mine has been disjointed and stunted at points, but I think using psychedelics has given me a very clear vision of, of that. Would you consider yourself an atheist? Um, I did once upon a time and I used to be very obnoxious about it. Like, like teenagers will be. Um, I try to avoid the label as much, maybe just dissociate myself from the more obnoxious elements. But like, I would, I would say that, like I said before, spirituality isn't something that I feel like I experience personally, but it's really not my place to deny that others feel it. I think there's, even from a scientific perspective, there's a good amount of claims and evidence supporting some kind of altered consciousness coming from spiritual states and vice versa. And I really think it's like stupid to just dis dis dismiss that outright just because you want to feel like you're right and feel like there's no God. Like I, I would say my connection to higher power is a very kind of, personal thing and a very specific personal definition that I use for myself. Um, so 
I, I didn't really answer your question, but I guess the answer would be like kinda. <laughs> yeah, I, I pre psychedelics, I I was like you, probably obnoxious atheist. But uh, post psychedelics, I don't consider myself an atheist. Uh, but um, I don't like. Uh, I don't really recognize like the in uh, organized religion the god that they present there is not really the the style I've encountered it's more a more f- fluid energy it's more like I guess you could say uh, if you compare it like in Star Wars like the force or something like that more more like that you know oh definitely yeah to to me to me God is something more conceptual than an actual like conscious thinking moving being God is more of like a concept than a, a person you could say <laughs> and uh, but I've always been interested in those that maybe do a lot of psychedelics, but they remain an atheist and how they, um, I always found that interesting because uh, from my, from my own perspective, I found it impossible to remain an atheist after using psychedelics. But in my case, it was mainly, uh, ayahuasca and, uh, which is a very spiritual psychedelic. Um, but, uh, I don't know. I mean, I haven't don't have your experience with the, the substances you've tried, so I can't really compare. Um, so, like, kind of my personal experience. This is actually came to me during a very intense trip from a very high dose of LSD combined with a psychedelic called DPT, uh, dipropyltryptamine. This is somewhat similar in structure to DMT, um, but has has very different effects and the conclusion that I kind of allowed myself to come to there was that there's almost like the way I rationalize it. Cause I'm, I'm a very kind of scientific rationalizing person. I had to rationalize it some way was that there's like a biological capacity for spiritual um, sensitivity. And so that, and I just didn't have that. Like I just wasn't born with that. It wasn't in my genetics. Um, I just, I'm not in touch with the spiritual world. Some people are genetically predisposed to be more in touch with the metaphysical world. And that's, that's perfectly fine. I'm just not one of those people, unfortunately, and I'm a little jealous of those people. In fact, when you do when you do them, do you do them in the dark, or do you walk around in the day, or what? How do you do it? Um, so my my preferred setting is just completely alone in the dark in a comfortable, familiar space. Um, that's kind of like the baseline. I think. What, what I like to do really do is compare different compounds with each other. So by kind of maintaining a similar setting throughout, I feel like I can analyze the compounds more than how the setting may have affected that compound. But, you know, also that can get kind of boring. I really do like to, uh, I, I'm a very solitary person when it comes to drugs. Um, but so even if I do go out, I still prefer to be alone. But oftentimes I will just take something and just go out, walk around by myself, hang out in a park, hang out in the woods, go for a little hike. Um, things like that. that that's my preferred setting and if I'm not out then I'm just at home alone but the, the biggest factor is usually solitude I definitely am not a social user of psychedelics no I don't think uh, psychedelics is really a social drug <laughs> uh, I don't understand the 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 those that uh, take like mushrooms and then go party I find that really weird <laughs> And uh, but have you have you tried any of the, the like classical psychedelics? Um, yeah, I've tried just about all the classical psychedelics. And at, 
it, it really depends on the dosage. I think at low doses, I can see them being uh, beneficial to social settings in a party, but I personally, I like to get the most avid experience I can. I always like to aim for higher doses. And at that point, once I'm in the throes of a very high dose experience, I don't want to talk to anybody. I just want to be with myself and think about myself and my experience of the world. Um, yeah. <laughs> There's been an increase in this kind of microdosing culture, and I don't want to deny anybody who says that they've got some help from microdosing, because apparently a lot of people say that they it helps them. Uh, I have never tried it myself, so I can't really. But there's a part of me that's like um, uh, sees that as some sort of like uh, hipster thing, you know? Like, uh, why don't you just macrodose? You know, why waste? Why, why take one tab of LSD over a period of two months when you can take two in one evening? Because the, the healing effect of that one intense, strong experience could last will last you for years, you know, rather than take something every day. That's almost, that's too much like, you know, I want to get away from the pharmaceutical companies. I don't want to have a need to, if I'm feeling, if I'm depressed, I don't want to take a pill every day. I rather like take ayahuasca and uh, then he be healed from that experience for years to come. You know what I mean? Yeah. And kind of at that point, it comes down to like different people have different requirements in the treatment. Different people are coming into mental health issues. You know, they're having different experiences, different intensities. Um, I do think, I frankly do think microdosing is beneficial to some people um, just on a purely like, neurological pharmacological level there's the, the there's ways that psychedelics work to increase neural interconnectivity that um i think does benefit mental health but there also is merit to just the the macro dose vision quest type of experience um it really it depends on the person it depends on what they're seeking it depends on what they need you know if somebody if somebody just wants to improve their just baseline mental health microdosing may be better if someone really wants to like work through a particularly difficult trauma maybe a very large dose with a intense experience uh, may prove beneficial to that person um but it is like yeah I, i'm sorry to draw the comparison to psychiatric medicine medicines but um the kind of the the thing with psychiatric medicines is different things work for different people and you don't know what works for you until you try and you know it's a bad way to go about it a lot of people get disillusioned a lot of people get things that do the opposite of what they wanted and you know they don't know what works for them until they try i've had friends who have terrible times with psychiatric medicines i've had friends who find ones that have helped them immensely and turned their lives around um it's it's really you know human human brains are so subjective and complicated that we can't reliably predict what any of these substances will do for anybody so we're really just kind of flying blind here, just groping in the dark and just hoping that we're lucky enough to find what works for somebody. <laughs> Seems to be the way that mental health is treated. So, Yeah, it's like uh, the problem I have with it is that they're a bit too quick to go with the pill. Uh, like maybe first try take a walk every day for a week. Is, has that an effect? Well, no, it doesn't help. Okay, maybe, you know, like so... But they go straight to the pill, you know, like maybe there's other things you could try first. And if that doesn't work, then maybe you can try the pill. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think like treatment of 
of mental illness should be like a holistic comprehensive thing like you can't just magically throw a pill at it and i think there is a bit of a fallacy even within psychedelics that people are like oh yeah like i'll just take a psychedelic and my problems will be fixed but it's I don't think that's the reality of it. Like you, you have to put in the work. Like you have to, if you take a psychedelic with the intention of dealing with some kind of trauma or mental health problem, you still have to, you still have to think through it. You still have to experience it. You have to put in some legwork. It doesn't. It's just not just a magic bullet that cures people. Um, and I think that's a common misconception: is that a lot of these kind of psychedelic treatments are just a magic bullet, but it requires a lot of work on the part of the user and um you know requires a lot of self-reflection a lot of uh introspection yeah that's true i i I don't consider like the psychedelic ceremony or whatever to start when you take it and end when when you're back to base reality because i take a macro dose it's usually days or weeks before i know i'm gonna do it that i start thinking about intention and like uh, sometimes I even chicken out and don't, don't do it but you know like I start thinking about it and then uh, for months afterwards you know so it's the the actual trip is way longer than the the actual trip and also I think the this thing with the intention I think is very important and I've uh, talked to a lot of people that seem to have uh, bad intentions uh, meaning that I think the intention should be uh, not uh, it shouldn't be shallow or it, it shouldn't be like superficial like uh, it would I want to have a better car you know or I want to ha- get a pay rise you know those kind of things won't work you know like you have to have some like a how can I improve my life like that's a better intention you know yeah I mean I think a big part of it also just like honesty like if you're taking a psychedelic just because you want to feel a bit of euphoria, you want to kind of get high, you should be honest about that. You shouldn't say that you're going after it for any deeper reason. And like, you know, I think, I think psychedelics, what's really amazing about them is that they can be just very shallow and recreational if you want them to be like, that's fine. I don't have any issue with that, but they also have just such unlimited depth to them too. And I think that's a really beautiful thing is that they're so versatile that they can be applicable to so many circumstances. They can be it could be life-saving and it could also just be something that makes a Friday night more fun. And I think it's amazing that just one compound at a different dose can do both of those things. Yeah. I don't have a problem if people want to take it in a superficial way, as long as they're responsible. So they don't ruin it for the rest of us because it's it's happened. What in my country, uh, a guy took mushrooms in the seventies and decided to walk down the street naked which is, I mean, if you take in mushrooms, that's a logical conclusion, you know, why not? But because he did that, they're now illegal, you know. So, uh, uh, like, to try and, uh, like, keep it on the down low, you know. Yeah, I mean, that, that, is a lot how, that is how a lot of the prohibition works. They just cherry pick that one case file, that one incident, and they, you know, never mind that hundreds and thousands of people have taken these compounds without any incident, they'll just point to that one incident and be like, we have to ban everything just because of this one thing went wrong. Um, you know, it's not, a, a, yeah, I'm sure we have similar views on drug prohibition, but <laughs> it's just nonsensical. It's not, it's arbitrary. It's not grounded in reality at all. It's just kind of guided by the prevailing views towards what's acceptable and what's not, especially with regards to altering your mind. I did a, a kind of a research project a while back where I 
calculated uh, how many people die from all the different kinds of psychedelics there are, including ecstasy, which is one of the more dangerous ones. And uh, and uh, I came to the stati- statistical conclusion that uh, more people die from from uh, falling over, like from tripping, physically tripping, like uh, in the shower, or uh, more people die from that. <laughs> I mean, yeah, there's. It was like David Nutt, who was um, part of the kind of UK's government, like health department, and he got fired because he just outright said, statistically, horseback riding is more dangerous than taking MDMA. And he's objectively correct, but, you know, they didn't want to hear that, so they fired him over it. Um, It's really, it's astoundingly arbitrary. I don't know if it's true. I haven't really looked into it, but a famous case is is that... uh... Guy can't uh, Sid Barrett from Pink Floyd, uh, who they the legend goes he took so much L- LSD that he fried his brain. Uh, is it, do you think any of these? If you take it too much, that it can do that, or or do you think maybe like in that case he he was already maybe he already had like schizophrenia or another disease that triggered from it or? Yeah, so I think I mean. I, I like that there is this kind of like revolution in the perception of psychedelics, that there's a lot of growing views towards legitimizing them. But I think people should still be cautious, and not be overly optimistic. Like these are incredibly powerful substances. They are not harmless. Um, it would be stupid to say that they're harmless, but the potential for healing is so immense that, you know, you have to just assess the risk. But I mean, there I, I've seen it myself personally and just people I've known who have just taken psychedelics way too much. Like uh, the, the term used is acid burnout. And I've seen it. <laughs> I've seen it in people. It's um, sometimes you just sometimes you take too much and it changes your mind for the worse. Sometimes you take too much, change your mind for the better. And it's like I said, it's like a psychiatric medicine before. You really can't predict how it's going to go until you try it, unfortunately. And by the time you tried it, it's too late. So that is the inherent risk in a lot of this. But um, I think it really is the responsibility of each individual to assess their own mental state, assess their history, assess their memories and their emotional well-being and decide whether they're willing to take this risk because the payoffs may be huge. Um, And frankly, a lot of the times that it does go wrong, it's because of external factors. And so if people do have the ability to kind of explore these things in a unrestricted setting, um, there's much greater chance to kind of mitigate those external factors that can make things go wrong. It'd be a lot, you know, if people are allowed to explore these things at their leisure, they can do it a lot more safely than um, trying to do it in the shadow of prohibition. I always think when I enter the psychedelic space that it feels very comfortable. It feels like coming home. Uh, it's very cozy in some way. And uh, uh, when I get back to normal reality, uh, it's a bit more boring. But usually because of the experience, I can enjoy it more. And I get, that's why you get healed from it. But maybe those people who uh, do it every day or like do it too much is because... Um, reality is still it's it's too cold for them they they rather remain in the dream you know they don't want to wake up uh, or 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 go back to sleep depending on how you look at it yeah and i can i can definitely sympathize with that um 
like I would say when I began exploring these compounds, my my main goal was just escapism, just escaping to my imagination, escaping to these different worlds. I was very depressed. I wanted to just get out. Um, but, you know, there's I, I wouldn't recommend somebody do that, but it turned out OK for me personally. I, I did that and eventually it's led to where I am now. It's kind of given me a purpose. It's given me um, a direction. So. It's it's hard to say, <laughs> but I mean, yeah, there is so there also is like a predilection for mental illness, um, and a lot of the fact is a lot of these compounds don't play well if there's underlying issues, um, and you know sometimes the, the purpose of these compounds could be to attack these underlying issues and help people work through them, but also sometimes they can behave very antagonistically and it can just make a bad problem worse and. I mean, I think it's up to the individual to assess that. It's up to uh, a responsible guide and therapist to help somebody work through that and assess that too. Um, it's definitely not something to be taken lightly. It's not a magic bullet, but um, it's also, there's a lot of potential for healing in all of this. I become a bit cynical about the evolution of psychedelics in terms of its industrialization that like in the beginning it, i liked it that it became more and more accepted and it could be good for mental health and that but now it's becoming more like a product uh, and uh, in the future maybe it's just i don't know it's I, a good metaphor it, it's kind of like your favorite rock band or something when they like kind of sell out and they the music doesn't become as good uh, it's kind of that's kind of what's happening and it's, it's i find it a bit annoying <laughs> And, and, you know, like, you know, you invest in it and you like, it's going to get on Wall Street and Big Pharma is going to get their hands on it. And I don't know, it, it should just be like free for all, you know? Yeah, I, 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 I'm not too happy about the capitalization of psychedelics, about how <laughs> it has become a product, a hot button thing about how people who have never looked into this before to see it as a way to get rich. That's, you know, I don't feel good about that at all. But um, I am... A little bit wary of the free-for-all route too i think there should be not necessarily management or control but just kind of people should be aware of the responsibilities that are heft on them when they take these compounds and people should be you know people should be aware of that this isn't something to be taken lightly this is something that should be handled responsibly and maturely and this is something that should be treated with respect um and I mean, frankly, I've seen the free-for-all route play out in kind of illicit spaces and underground spaces, and that isn't really necessarily pretty either. That's, I think there is, I think moderation is best. There is definitely overuse, and I've definitely seen overuse play out. Um, but I think there is, there is something to be found between just brutal drug war prohibition and also just like liberty and overuse of, of substances. Um, I'm starting to lean more towards this thing that I, I kind of liked the concept that it's like a, it's a mystical secret. And if you stumble upon it, it you can have it. But if you don't, you'll never know about it. You know, <laughs> you know, it felt like I discovered it, uh, even though I didn't. But, you know, nobody told me about it. I kind of like discovered it. And it does. So uh, it's. But now, like, if you see an advert on TV, oh, do this psychedelic if you have these problems. Um, it's not really the same. Uh, but I guess it's just like <laughs> it's, it's just my personal feelings about it. But uh, yeah, I mean, that comes with the territory of legitimization. Is just like there's you'll see more widespread use. Um, 
And, you know, that comes with the whole trappings of marketing and profit and all of that, um, which can kind of muddy the pool a great deal. But um, oh, at the end of the day, I think it is something, I think uh, there is benefit to just wide, just wider observance and wider acceptance of these compounds, I think. Um, it's definitely, you know, not going to work for everybody. It could be even bad for some people, but if you just widen the pool of people who are willing to accept this, then you widen the pool of people that it could potentially help too. That's true. But I guess it's kind of like yoga, like true original yoga is like, it's, it's hardcore stuff, but then you have these like, yo like women go do yoga. Like it's not really the true yoga. You know what I mean? Uh, I guess it's like that. Uh, everything when it enters the market becomes, they always try to make it wholesome, you know, like, and uh, soft. This is a problem I had, have a bit with maps because there, I was talking to Rick Doblin, the guy who founded it, and he wants to make ayahuasca into like a, a pill where you don't have that vomiting effect. And uh, I disagree with that because, well, you can make the pill, but I, the, the thing with ayahuasca for me personally, is that the vomiting experience is equally important. I it's like the climax of the evening, you know. I and it's also um, uh, very healing for the body, and uh, that part of the ay ayahuasca brew that m makes you vomit. It's uh, um, it helps if you have parasites or whatever. It's very it's cleaning your body. Uh, I, I don't think it should be removed. I don't I don't think it should be like if you can't handle the vomiting, maybe you don't do it, you know. Yeah, and I mean I think a lot of a lot of the direction that this field is going is making it more accessible to the masses. Like, you know, you have to think that there's a lot of people out there who this is just like this the the psychedelic experience is inconceivable to them and you want to make it as palatable to those people as possible. Um not saying I agree with this, but this is, you know, this is like the perspective of, say, someone who's trying to make a profit off of this. Um, but I mean, uh, my, my thought on that specifically is like, just you can do that. Just don't call it ayahuasca. Like that's that's a very essential part of the ayahuasca experience. And I mean, in my mind, like even just using the specific plants for an ayahuasca experience and being under the guidance of like an ayahuasca shaman is essential for the ayahuasca experience. And I think anything else you could call it ayahuasca adjacent, but you couldn't really truly call it an ayahuasca experience. Yeah, I guess I'm I'm a bit hypocritical because I do and I do like non-alcoholic beer because I hate getting drunk. So I guess I'm doing I'm I'm doing the same thing, you know. I, I'm drinking beer, but I've removed the alcohol. You know, <laughs> it's <laughs> yeah. That is, I think that is a, a good equivalency, um, and. I think um, there is like research being done even that they want to kind of discover things that will yield the kind of long-term positive like neurological effects of psychedelics without actually yielding a psychedelic experience. Um, and, you know, you can, yeah, I'm kind of curious what your opinion on that would be. Because um, for some people, it isn't really like the experience that gives them the benefit is kind of like the actual like physical changes within the nervous system that uh, yields the benefits to their mental health. So I think this is actually a very interesting avenue to pursue that. Um, but then for other people, it is the, the actual experience itself that gives them the benefit.
when my receptors in the brain realigned or whatever changed or whatever they did to make me become healed from certain things uh, I don't know if that's what happened or if it is because what I experienced if it, if we if what I saw was just a visual representation of, of the technical changes done in my brain I you know I don't know <laughs> but for me uh, it's it it was what I saw and experienced uh, and uh, the rewiring of the brain happened because when I saw and experienced those things, I changed my mind, you know. But I don't know if the chicken or the egg came for. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, no, I've, I've always kind of wondered that myself. Like, um, the big thing now is, like, ketamine. People talk about the healing powers of, of ketamine as a, as a treatment. And a lot of the healing abilities of ketamine are kind of not attributed to the experience itself, but kind of the neurological changes. And so that makes you wonder, because... For me personally, the most benefit to my mental health has come from um, dissociatives, namely analogs of PCP. And I kind of wonder like whether that's some kind of subtle neurological change that I really don't have control over, or whether that's like it puts me in a state that allows me to kind of think in a way that benefits my mental health. Um, so it's kind of like drawing the line between the, the cognitive and the psychiatric and you know, whether you're get, whether you're treating yourself as something that's just a straight up psychiatric or whether you're treating yourself as something that would be considered more of a cognitive aid or a therapy aid versus a just like a raw psychiatric chemical change in yourself. Easier to explain it that way. Like, so before psychedelics, I used to be a very angry person with a very short fuse, like extremely short. I could blow up over nothing. And... Um, so in the ayahuasca experience, I had a life review where I saw my entire life. Uh, I don't, it happened, you know, fast. I don't know, but I saw it in uh, in real time. My entire life, and I saw it from above, and I saw it if I had lived that life not angry. And I was like, oh. Uh, and, for, uh, and that was that that was enough Af so after when i came home after that experience uh i have had my fuse i mean it takes way more for me to get angry now from that just one vision so if that was a rewiring of the brain or if it's just me it was so powerful to see that that i was like oh well that's a that's a not really a good strategy you know <laughs> To be like that. Yeah. And it, it is really difficult to draw the distinction. Like, do you, yeah, was that rewiring your brain or like did the ayahuasca just like put you in a place where you able to just think yourself out of that? Like, was that, you know, it's, <laughs> there's, there's things in our brains that we, that we can't control, which is, uh, you know, baffling and troubling. But it kind of, a lot, a lot of these drugs made me kind of wonder, like, what can I control? Like, what actually is within my control? Um, so I don't know. <laughs> There's a lot that remains to be seen. So do you do all your writing on Arrowhead? Um, So most of what I write, I publish to my own personal blog, um, reports on new compounds. I usually share just online drug communities like Reddit, Blue Light, and everything I write. I also share to Arrowhead. Um, they usually process it and have it posted to their website pretty quickly. So what's your what's your website and where can people read your, your stuff? Uh, so everything I post is on nervewing.blogspot.com. 
Um, so that's, yeah, just my name here, .blogspot.com. And uh, if you if you prefer Arrowwood's formatting, if you just Google my name with Arrowwood, uh, it'll give you the first result will just be a page with all the reports that are published through Arrowwood's platform. Um, and, you know, it can be a little easier on the eyes. <laughs> are you like uh, part of the furniture over at Arrowwood? Are you, are you a, one of the pillars? Oh, no, I would not say that at all. Um, I've, I have... I do keep correspondence with some of their staff, um, but ultimately I just started submitting a lot of reports to them. Eventually one of the, some of their staff members would just reach out to me and contact me and be like, huh, this is like interesting. This, this same person is posting, is submitting like a lot of very long detailed reports. Um, and so through that I've, I've built up friendship and correspondence with some of their staff members. And there was a time that I uh, also volunteered to help them in are reading, grading, new reports that get submitted and kind of, because Arrowwood gets a lot of submissions and frankly, a lot of them, hate to say it, are really not worth publishing. They don't contribute anything. It's just a waste of data, frankly. Um, so there is a team that kind of like grades the reports that get in and decides like what's, what is valuable to be published and what shouldn't be. And Airwood has very well kind of outlined terms on what it thinks is valuable data and what it thinks uh, provides important contributions to our knowledge of these areas. It's not so much anymore. There's a bigger, uh, a bigger community or uh, more more websites these days. But Airwood used to be like the only only place one time in history. You know, like there wasn't many other places you could find this kind of information online. Yeah, like a lot of a lot of the discussion these days, I think um, kind of what what has caused caused Airwood to kind of lag in recent years is that it um there isn't really discussion there. It's just kind of postings, um, and then you know you have like communities like Blue Light Drugs Drugs Forum on Reddit where you have people actually able to discuss these things, and I think that's very valuable. And you know, there's also a lot of danger in that. Like people can offer a lot of bad advice. People can say really stupid things and encourage each other to do really stupid things, which is a hazard. And I think Arrowwood maybe was wise to dodge around that. Um, but like, yeah, at its time, Arrowwood was revolutionary. It was, so, it was it's an incredible project to this day. Um, and, you know, but when like, yeah, you, when you contextualize it in the time that it was produced, it is truly something revolutionary. I can't remember if, if it was Arrowwood or another site, but they tried to to document every entity and character that you would ever encounter in a dmt experience um i don't think i've seen that one i've seen there's a project called the subjective effects index that really tried to like catalog and define the reported effects that people get from psychedelics and hallucinatory or hallucinogenic drugs um because there are what, what was really interesting is that especially for specific compounds there are like common things that are reported in terms of like visual patterns or visual aspects or certain entities you know like everyone's heard of like the machine elves and everything um so it is an interesting project but also you know i'm kind of more on the side of drugs are a very internal subjective thing too so like who can really say like what objective things you can draw out of that i also want it to be pure so i don't want to like read 10 books about what dmt is like and then do dmt because it might have influenced my my brain you know so i'd like to go in blind if i can but after a certain amount of years it's impossible but 
Um, well, it was very uh, nice talking to you, and uh, I'll uh, post the link to your uh, site as well in the program notes. Yeah, absolutely. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for talking to me. Why don't you check out Nerve Wing's blog, nervewing.blogspot.com. Some of the podcasts that exist out there in the world are promoting my podcast for free, and in return, I shall do the same for them. It's called Bartering. So it only works if you actually check out the podcasts I promote and if the people who hear my promo over at their podcast actually check me out. (coughs) Hey, this is Anthony Tyler, host of Black Hoodie Alchemy on the Fringe FM. You can catch me every Monday evening, 6 p.m. Pacific time, where we uh, talk about the dark side of metaphysics and we'll chill a little bit. Uh, And you can catch me the day after on Spotify or Apple or Amazon or wherever else you stream your podcasts. If you've ever wondered what someone like Carl Jung might say about serial killers or perhaps cryptids, then this is the show for you. Skeptical, yet open-minded, empirical, but philosophical. We are going to talk about some really weird stuff, so I hope you join me on Black Hoodie Alchemy. Take it easy. If you have the time, consider leaving a review on iTunes or Spotify, or subscribe to my YouTube channel, or become a patron. All the links can be found on naturalbornalchemist.com, as well as my social media. I'm going to close now with the song More Medicine by White Lighters. If you like it, go to White Lighters Music over at whitelighters13.bandcamp.com and that's 13 as in the number. The next episode that's not a rerun is going to deal with anarchy and Bitcoin. Stay tuned. Freedom is in the mind. (laughs) 